In the season of Advent, there is a sense of longing and of hope, even in and especially in a time of sorrow. And in order to recognize and engage with this longing and hope, one must slow down, wait, even sit in some tension. And we're well into this season, so I trust that the Lord has been stirring you to respond in such a manner, especially through these psalms that we've been looking at. This morning we're in Psalm 126, and the psalmist in Psalm 126 knows this sense of longing and of hope. He knows it deeply to the point of experiencing joy in the waiting and the tension, the the longing for and hoping for something better. He knows joy even in sorrow. And this psalm's implications reach far beyond even the Advent season. It's really a perfect song for what it means to live a human life. In all of life, especially in our sorrow, we're, we're hoping for something ultimately far better, aren't we? For, for restoration, for joy. This psalm is a story of a people remembering a time of great joy and hoping for it again. But they're in a time of weeping and sorrow. Life isn't as great as it once was and they're they're looking to God to do something that, that they cannot do for themselves. They're looking for a great restoration of joy. And we are too. If we're, if we're honest, this psalm is a picture of the life of every human being who ever has and ever will live, this journey of sorrow and joy. So let's look at what the psalmist is saying about all of this. Um, just, a, just a quick bit of context that's helpful. Several generations before this psalm was written, the city of Jerusalem is destroyed and the people are taken captive and led away into exile. And so the people are are carried away from the promised land, weeping, but the word of the Lord comes to them so very graciously. The word of the Lord comes to them through the prophets and speaks to them, take heart, do not fear, I am with you, and in just the right time, I will restore your fortunes. And because God is a God who keeps his promises, that's exactly what happened. And the people did return from exile. And, and those that lived through the captivity and the exile, this restoration of the city was too good to be true. It was like living in a dream. And that's right where this psalm finds itself. In this short song, we see a, a remembering, a, a looking to the past in the first three verses, and then a recognition of the present and a longing for the future in verses five and six. So there's past, present, and future. And and all of it comes alive in this beautiful song of expressing the tension of, of knowing joy, knowing what it's like to have that joy, but being in sorrow while trusting in and and hoping for a future filled with the joy that once was and, and even more. So let's start reading in verse one here. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. 
Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. So I already mentioned that these opening verses are a remembering of that sobering joy the people of God experienced when they were brought back from exile. They were like those who dream. It says it was too good to be true. And as the psalmist is reflecting back at at a face value uh, reading of this, it, it might seem like he's just kind of wrapped up in nostalgia, remembering the good old days that are that are long gone. But that's not quite the tone here. It isn't just nostalgia. As we'll see as the psalm unfolds, it is a, it is a biblical hope and, and, and faith looking back in order to look forward. The Lord had done great things for them. Even the surrounding nations knew it. And, and they were glad. But that gladness faded as it tends to do. See, we need more than just memories of, of the great things done, don't we? we? We need the hope of great things to come. Our, our past, as great as it might have been at times, is the past. You, you might have heard this idea that there's this desperation that, that we have to go back, that, that the point is for us to get back to the garden, But as as great as that was, God doesn't intend to take us back to what was. He intends to bring us forward into what will one day be. Revelation doesn't end back in the garden. It it looks forward to a glorified garden, a, a garden city, the uniting of heaven and earth. And so the psalmist is is looking back in order to hope for a future uh, of greatness and glory and joy. And then verse four is sort of the present tense hinge of this whole song. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. So the psalmist kind of snaps back to reality here, knowing that things uh, that they have not yet experienced, this restoration as it will one day be. The present circumstances in Jerusalem were not Pretty homes were destroyed. The, the uncultivated land was fallow. The, the temple was in ruins. And it must have been overwhelming. The joy was already in the past. The present difficult. And, and the future was uncertain. But despite this, the people remember the joy of their deliverance and ask in faith for God to restore them. The psalmist is petitioning God for for a miraculous restoration like in the Negev when it rains. The Negev is a desert region in southern Israel where very little grows or survives except when it rains. And when the rain falls in the Negev, it falls abundantly to the point where these dry riverbeds become rushing streams of water and everything blossoms. This is the picture of restoration that the psalmist longs for. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. And don't hear this as a, song, as a longing sigh of distress. It's a new and hopeful song. Yes, there's a plea for restoration, but it's not out of desperation. It's a cry of expectation. It's a cry for God to do it again. 
grounded in the faith that he will. Hopeful expectation that God is doing something. But what is the future hope? Let's read the last couple of verses here. Verse five. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. So verse two mentions that the people had experienced joy, right? And and verses five and six look forward to a future filled with shouts of joy. So we see a bit of a theme here in joy. What is joy? It's certainly more than a feeling, We know that. We learn from Paul's letter to the Galatians that joy is the fruit of the Spirit. Joy is not happiness. Joy is assurance. It is the assurance of God's goodness now and into the future, no matter the circumstances. It is a resolved and a quiet confidence that, that ultimately everything will be all right. And, and not just knowing that, but being determined to praise God always in everything. Joy is knowing, to echo the great theologian J.R.R. Tolkien, that everything sad will come untrue. I know I maybe lost half of you with that reference, um, and at the risk of losing even more of you, let me expound and point out that in that scene, in the return of the king, after Sam asks Gandalf if everything sad is going to come untrue and, and what's happening to the world, Gandalf says, a great shadow has departed. And then listen to this. Then it says, and then he laughed, and the sound was like music or like water in a parched land. And as he listened, the thought came to Sam that he had not heard laughter, the pure sound of merriment for days upon days without count. It fell upon his ears like the echo of all the joys he had ever known. Come on now. That, that's inspired. Uh, this could have been a whole Lord of the Rings sermon, so you're welcome for not doing that. But uh, anyways, joy. So the working out of this joy... And looking forward to a future of joy, especially amidst sorrow, happens through the process of sowing and reaping, the psalmist says. Even though none of us are farmers, we know enough about agriculture to know that that sowing and reaping, it's cultivating and harvesting, it's all slow, right? And that's how God often works, through this slow but very certain way in our lives, And the psalmist here takes on this agricultural language when he talks about sowing tears and reaping joy. Let's just recognize the reality of sorrow, of of tears for a minute. That life is hard. Life in this world is hard. Wars, political corruption, national unrest, broken relationships, Divorce, family hostility, miscarriages, infertility, unwanted singleness, chronic illness, 
pain experienced within the church. But Psalm 126 assures us that God is not sitting idly by. He is doing something with our tears. And the the confidence of the psalmist is is really remarkable. He's so sure in, in the future faithfulness of God that even through tears, he's able to rejoice today. Now, if we look carefully at verses five and six, we see a couple of important implications for the relationship between sorrow and joy in our lives. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. Those who go out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, take up shouts of joy, right? So here are the implications. One, your sorrows can be wasted. In all the heartache and tears of this life, it is possible to grieve in a way that doesn't produce any fruit, at least good fruit. Here's one example. We're instructed in 1 Corinthians to comfort others with the comfort that we have received from Jesus. But, but if we haven't received that comfort, if we do nothing to learn from our sorrow and, and reap the comfort that we can then share with others, then it's wasted. This is really the result of bitterness or even anger in our suffering we aren't comforted, and then we aren't able to share that comfort with others, which is a double tragedy. So don't waste your sorrows. The second implication is that, and this is really important, that joy is produced by the sorrow. Do you notice that? Joy is produced by the sorrow. We all, we all hope and believe that sorrow will lead to joy, right? Weeping may last for the night, but joy comes in the morning, Psalm 30 says, When we're sad, we hope God brings joy. But but this goes beyond that. It's saying more than sorrow can lead to joy. The the joy is actually produced by the sorrow. There's so much hope in that. Our tears, if not wasted, are the seeds that promise a harvest of joy. Our tears do not fall to the ground in vain. We sow our tears in faith, trusting that God keeps his promises and our mouths will be filled with shouts of joy. Our tears will sprout into something good and beautiful because our God is the God of restoration and we can be like trees planted by streams of water, like trees in the Negev. In this short song, the psalmist looks to the future, hoping for something even better than what he remembers from the past. See, see God is always preparing us for a greater hope. The Bible tells us that God prunes the fruitful branches in our lives, which isn't a comfortable thing, so that he can do something new and better, bringing even more fruit than before. And ultimately, in all of life, we are being prepared by the hope of resurrection joy. Life, as we know, involves cultivating. And cultivating takes time we don't always want to spend. It takes watering when we don't want to. It takes maturing, which is not easy. There are tears involved. 
but we can invest those tears, sow those tears in the hope of resurrection joy. And we learn from Jesus that, yes, it it is a slow and steady process, but, but more importantly, it doesn't happen without death. He said, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, what? It bears much fruit. Jesus is our living proof that buried hope grows into glorious joy. Yes? The the tears of the cross bore the fruit of the resurrection. He went out weeping, bearing his life for sowing, and and he came home with sheaves, bringing many sons to glory. That is our joy. He is our steadfast confidence that everything sad will come untrue. It is our hope that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we will see him as he is in all of his resurrected glory. St. Augustine says, the entire life of a good Christian is in fact an exercise of holy desire. You do not yet see what you long for, but the very act of desiring prepares you so that when he comes, you may see and be utterly satisfied. Through our sorrow, we're being trained by longing. Longing for ultimate joy that is only found in the resurrected Jesus. Yes, you should expect suffering, expect tears, expect pruning. But as we learn in 1 Peter, don't be surprised when that happens. But rejoice because you share in Christ's suffering. And then you will rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Sorrow is inevitable in this life. And we must be rooted in Christ so that when the tears come, our foundation is fixed. We don't don't want to be scrambling in the middle of a crisis. That that would be wasting our sorrow. And and this Advent season is a wonderful time to embrace a a slow quietness and, and to learn to trust more and more in God's faithfulness. Maybe your days lately are filled with tears. Maybe right now you feel like you're in exile. That's okay. And you're not alone. Sow your tears in the promises of God. You will reap a great harvest with shouts of joy. Paul says that your affliction is light and momentary compared to the eternal weight of glory that your sorrow is preparing you for. This Advent season anticipates the celebration of Jesus coming to the earth for the first time, and it is glorious, but that's not the end of the story. The Bible doesn't end with a deep sigh of rest. It cries out in hopeful and eager anticipation, come, Lord Jesus. We still long for and hope for the full restoration of our joy in eternity with the risen Christ. Let us live joyfully 
and in great confidence of God's goodness both now and into the future. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your promise that faithfully sowing our tears will result in a harvest of joy. We know that we cannot live, move, or have our being without you. And so we ask you to fill us with your joy that is truly our strength. Give us, your church, the boldness to live joyfully in full assurance of your goodness now and forever and to always praise you even in the midst of sorrow. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.